0: Morka Morka, in the beginning. On the edge of the northeastern fringe of the Imperium lies a small binary star, known to humans as XCV-103, around which orbits a small and totally dead planet. Hundreds of years ago, the Imperium named this world Angelus and sent ships to explore it and investigate the alien ruins that lay under its barren surface. Nothing was ever heard from that expedition again. Though the Imperium's astropaths probed far into the void, their efforts came to nothing. Soon the search was ended. Further attempts to reach the planet were abandoned in the face of warp storms, impenetrable to the ships of the Emperor. There is no monument to the men who travelled so far across the galaxy, and whose fate remains a mystery to this day. They passed beyond the knowledge of mankind, and the only record of their expedition is a brief entry in the files of the Adeptus. A file whose final entry is stamped, All contact lost. Present status unknown. Nerd bad urtyulk, Zagwebwizer de warp. The day the Hulk came down. The birth of Gorka began with the death of Angelus. Without warning, A fiery harbinger of doom plummeted onto this parched, dead world from the depths of space. Its immense impact took just an instant to all but wipe the presence of man from the face of the world. The climate and topography of Angelus were irrevocably shattered and remade in a new and even harsher image. The destruction was not wrought by some rogue comet or wayward asteroid. The object which impacted on Angelus was a space hulk, a gigantic vessel... Manned by the most savage and barbaric race in the galaxy Orcs. The warp rift that sucked the Space Hulk towards the planet was as sudden as it was unexpected. All communications between the human Imperium and its forward exploration team on the world were severed instantly. At the same time, vast gravimetric forces tore at the fabric of the warp, drawing the passing Hulk to its destruction on the planet below. The Space Hulk ...plunged through the thin air at hypersonic speed. Ancient reactors broke apart, fuel cells ruptured... ...spilling their corroded contents and causing a radioactive cloud to spread in the Hulk's wake. Its outer layers burned fiercely, but due to the paucity of the planet's atmosphere... ...and acute angle of descent, most of the Hulk survived intact to strike the surface. The gigantic ship struck the equatorial desert and scoured a gash in the planet extending nearly a thousand miles to the northwest. Its progress drove the underlying rocks into high ridges like a monstrous furrow. Still, travelling at tremendous speed, the Space Hulk scattered thousands of tonnes of wreckage in its path. Parts of the craft broke away from the main body, leaving a trail of torn and twisted metal. The shockwave, created at the prow of the Hulk, threw millions of tonnes of desert into the air, and the explosive power of the impact was enough to shatter nearby rocks into powder. A pall of radiation and dust was cast over the world that would not settle for ten whole years. Space hulks, or just hulks to orcs, are a by-product of warp travel. A space hulk is not a single spaceship or a conglomeration of vessels compacted together by massive collisions within the warp and the material universe. They are immense twisted piles of half-wrecked craft, creating a maze of galleries and corridors many miles in length. Some space hulks are all that remain of a flotilla caught in a sudden warp storm, the vessels of the fleet crushed into a single mass by the power of the immaterial tempest. Others have accumulated over centuries, even millennia, slowly growing in size as derelict ships and crude vessels crash into the expanding mass of wreckage. Through the course of its existence, a space hulk may drift through the warp for decades or centuries until some chance flicker of the warp deposits it into the real galaxy. Orcs use space hulks to transport them across the gulfs between stars. The orc mechs construct immense tractor beam generators, each the size of a small town. They use these to trap a passing hulk in space, then transport themselves aboard with crew teleporters. The mechs then create an energy bubble in one part of the Ulk, which the orcs can inhabit. The rest of the buoys are ported on board, and the tractor beams are then reversed to give the Ulk a burst into space. From their small enclave, the orcs expand outwards, constructing more energy shields and creating physical barriers against the outside vacuum. Once a firm grip has been established, the mechs may build huge engines to allow the orcs to steer the Ulk in a basic fashion but much of the time is left to the Orc gods Gork and Mork to guide them to a suitable destination. The Space Hulk that crashed on Angelus was not uninhabited, and, like many such accretions of space debris, it had already evolved an ecosystem of its own. Its most notable inhabitants were an Orc tribe on their way to take part in a galactic war of conquest, or WA, as Orcs call these violent migrations. That orcs should be on board is hardly a surprise. That these orcs had accidentally hitched a lift upon a hulk that was shortly to smash down onto the world of Angelus could only be put down to bad luck. The crash killed almost all the orcs on board, but a few survived, together with other orcish creatures such as Gretchen and the tiny animalistic squigs. Others probably succumbed to the fires and the billowing clouds of radiation leaking out from the space hulk. But orcs being orcs, and naturally resistant to radiation, physical damage, and setbacks of all kinds, they promptly set about the business of surviving. Of course, all this is speculation, as orcs have never been great ones for record-keeping, and their oral traditions tend to stick strictly to who bashed who and how badly, rather than exploring the sequential or causal nature of history. Nonetheless, in the light of later events, We can be fairly sure that this is, roughly, what happened. This is not the place to explore the uncertain mire of xenobiology, that is, orc genetics. But suffice to say, those who survived the crash became the progenitors of all the orcs on Angelus today. Of course, it is important to bear in mind that orcs and humans are very different creatures. Orcs and other greenskins are riddled with symbiotic algal cells whose own separate genetic development is confusingly enmeshed with that of the orcs. It is this symbiote strand which carries genetically encoded cultural skills, endowing orcs with innate knowledge and abilities. Thus, primary technical skills are passed on genetically, rather than learned or taught in the fashion of humans. Descended as they are from an unusually restricted gene pool, the orcs who survived the crash developed a culture which is in many ways unique amongst their own kind. Possibly the high levels of radiation leaking from the wreckage of their space hulk had something to do with this, mutating the orcoid cells, subtle genetic strands that transmit knowledge from generation to generation. Finding themselves stranded upon a hostile and barren world, the Orcs appear to have turned to their scientists for salvation, and thus the Mechboys, as Orc scientists are called, became the leaders and prime movers of the new Orc society. The Mechboys decreed that they would build from the wreckage of the old Space Hulk a new craft that would take them away from this world and return them to the stars. The new vessel would carry them back to the War, so that they could rejoin their brothers in glorious galactic conquest. From that beginning long ago, the orcs have grown and prospered. When the first mech boy laid the foundation rib of his new craft among the ruins of the old Hulk, he undoubtedly had some plan in mind. As the orcs explored the wreckage of the Hulk, they would have found many strange and alien devices, as well as plenty of raw materials with which to build. One can imagine how the mech boys who directed them would have carefully sorted these materials, putting aside potentially useful components, dismantling others for spare parts, and utilising what they could to build furnaces, generators, and the countless sophisticated tools needed to complete the job. The construction work continued unabated for year upon year. The expanding population of orcs scurried over the planet's surface in search of raw materials, with the passing generations one mech-boy succeeded another, and the number of mech-boys grew from just a few to tens and then hundreds. Over the years, mech-boys evolved new ideas which they incorporated into the structure, and sometimes dismantling older parts of the edifice to construct new parts, only to have their own work rebuilt or ignored by their successors. With so many mech-boys working on the craft, some began to develop radically different ideas about how it should work, what its function was, and even what it was they were building. Some mechpoys thought that they were making a spaceship that would blast off from the planet and carry the orcs back into space, where they would rejoin the wire of their ancestors. They incorporated engines, stabilizers, fuel tanks, and enclosing force fields to retain atmospheric pressure in space. Others poured scorn upon this notion, believing instead that the purpose of the giant machine was to teleport the orcs onto a passing space hulk, where they could resume their journey to the wire. A few wilder individuals rejected both these ideas as ludicrous, proclaiming that the machine would one day rise to its feet, scoop the orcs into its hands, and carry them to the promised war. In truth, there were as many theories as there were mech boys to voice them. As the mechanical bulk grew bigger and bigger, its structure became increasingly confused and diverse. Mechboys from one faction laboured away at teleporters on one side, whilst others were busy filling fuel tanks on the other. Discord reigned, and positions became so entrenched that mechboys, holding contrary views, refused to even speak to each other. Matters were complicated by the fact that the Orcs have retained no formal records or historical perspective. Their scientific knowledge was intuitive, and sometimes led them in bizarre and opposite directions. The experience of space itself was openly questioned, and even the true origin of the Hulk wreckage and their own past was forgotten. Amongst all this anarchy of activity, the Orcs retained one clear thought, that they were building their salvation. One day, the machine would awake, and carry them away from here and back to the war. This was certain and no Orc would stop to question the validity or the importance of that single obvious fact. Besides... As the work continued, the shape and size of the construction had begun to take on a form that stirred primeval instincts amongst the population. Above the huts and workshops that the orcs called Mechtown, the bulging outer shell towered like a massive torso. Vast rockets on either side resembled the broad legs of a squat colossus. Topping the structure was the command centre, like a massive scowling head. For miles in every direction... The squat form could be seen by the orcs as they dug and hacked amongst the wreckage, searching for more materials to add to its bulk. But when the orcs began to think of their creation as a god is impossible to say. Perhaps that was always the intention. But more likely, its towering presence worked its way into their collective psyche. What had probably started out as an accidental resemblance soon became a deliberate part of the design as rockets were rearranged and sections removed to enhance the appearance of the god. Soon, all the orcs were referring to their creation as Gork or Mork, after the two fierce gods of Orkdom. As far as the orcs were concerned, a wondrous thing had happened, for the gods themselves had come to save them and take them back to the war. Or at least, one of them had. And that, it seems, was the source of much of the trouble that followed. Over the years, the mech Boys had endured differences in opinion about their creation that had led to arguments, fights and protracted feuds. These had been mostly personal affairs which hadn't really stopped progress for very long. However, the orcs were soon to suffer their first crises since arriving on the planet. The causes of this traumatic division seem bizarre to the human mind, yet human history itself is full of sectarian violence, whose origins are every bit as perverse and incomprehensible. The crisis stemmed from the view amongst some mechboys that the god they had built was Gork, whilst others took the view that the god was in fact Mork. These two factions became known as the Gorkers and the Morkers, and the dispute soon spread to every orc in mech town, not just the mech boys. Soon it was impossible for an orc to go into an alehouse or squig market without finding himself embroiled in a debate as to the merits of one view or another. Orcs, who had cheerfully referred to good old Gork" since they were pups, they suddenly found themselves violently opposed to neighbours who happened to greet the tower each day with a carefree Morning, Mork! Arguments developed into running battles, and battles into a war that raged through Mectown and the Skid. As the supporters of Gork and Mork fought in the alleys and workshops of Mectown, rival mechboys battled inside the bulk of the massive structure itself. The Gorkers did their utmost to destroy the work of the Morkers, while the Morkers were equally determined to smash the bits that Gorkers had built. Where the two met, they tore into each other with zealous savagery. Hundreds of mech boys and their lads were killed. It was probably during this fighting that some orc put a shell through one of the fuel tanks. Before anyone could do anything to stop it, the gigantic structure was blazing from head to toe. This was not the first time that fires and explosions had halted work on Gorkamorka. In the past, random force field accidents had torn out chunks or sent parts tumbling onto Mechtown below. But this was different. This was catastrophic. Of the once massive bulk of Gorka Morka, all that remained was a few blackened ribs and heaps of twisted metal. The work of generations of mech boys had been undone in a single night of madness. This disaster finally brought the mech boys to their senses, and they called an immediate halt to the hostilities which still raged all over Mektown. The Gorkas and Morkas reached an uneasy settlement in the interests of all Mektown. They swore that never again would any similar argument stand in the way of their return to the wire. They agreed to accept their differences and to share the effort of construction between them, reserving any questions of the god's identity until the big day, when he was ready to take them back to the wire in person. Meanwhile, in the interests of general harmony, the god would be referred to as Gorka Morka, without implication that he was either Gork or Mork, but could equally well be either or both. Of course, this solution, or more accurately, fudge, posed many more theological problems for the Mech boys to untangle at a later date, fueling the discussion as to the exact nature of Gork and or Mork, as fiercely as beer. The dispute was not ended by any means, and the Gorker and Morker Mech boys became, if anything, even more entrenched. Likewise, the vast majority of the Orcs accepted the hazy logic with exaggerated enthusiasm and the two factions simply kept bashing each other while they were out of sight of Mectown. Nonetheless, the majority of orcs now know the towering pile of machinery, only as Gawker Morker. Mectown today. Mectown. There's no other place like it on the planet. Come to think of it, there is no other place on the planet. Mectown is it. It's the oldest, biggest, most exciting... And definitely the only settlement in the old world. This is unless you count the digger holes and the pyramids, which is pushing it. Plus, wherever the grots, snots and muties hide. They all live under rocks, and that's hardly what you and me would call civilised, now is it? It ain't hard to find Mactown, because of all the glorious lights, loud noises and gruesome smells that spill out across the desert for miles around. Most likely it's not Mactown you'll find first, but the skid. The skid is a... dead straight valley. steep-sided. With Macktown at the fat end. Find the skid, which is hundreds of miles long, ride along it, and you'll come to Macktown, sure as teeth is teeth. The skid is quite in place too. It's the best spot to find quality wreckage. Most is half buried in the ground, but some lies just outside the skid, hidden among the rocks. There's plenty of wreckage waiting for them as wants it. Of course, there's all sorts of nasties in the skid, especially at the thin end, where there's a big, long chunk of old wreck. We call this skid row, and this is where a lot of bad grots hangs out, as well as a few nasty types, that is best avoided if you know what's good for you. Still, I've had many a bash in the skid, and carried me off some top-notch tech. As you can see by the size of me jingles, Ah, uh, it's a good life, and no mistake, gawk be praised. Mectown has grown into a thriving community. Its buildings are constructed from and amongst the wreckage of the old Space Hulk, of over the generations so much has been dismantled and cannibalised that little actual wreckage remains, just the occasional gigantic spar sticking out of the ground like a massive metallic rib. Mectown is packed with houses and workshops, bazaars, squig markets and tiny shops all crammed as close to Gorka Morka as possible because when the day comes, it is surely important to be as near as you can get. The main bazaar lies in front of Gorkamorka and, and consists of row upon row of makeshift stalls, where orc warriors come to trade their salvaged scrap in return for a few teeth. The bazaar is the medium of trade for scrap of all kinds, from lumps of corroded metal to functioning tech dug out of some distant wreck. The traders buy and sell choice bits amongst themselves, and the most likely-looking pieces are brought by the Mech Boys for incorporation into Gorka Morka. Between the Bazaar and the Squig Market stands a tall pillar, almost 50 feet high, which has been there as long as Town. It is made of shining silver metal that has resisted all attempts to cut, break or melt it, and so it remains today as pristine and unsullied as it was the day the Hulk came down. All around it is an area of beaten ground, where the orcs gather if they are looking for work. Consequently, the pillar is known as the job pole, and this is where an orc knob will go if he wants to hire labour or needs a few boys for a special task. The squeak market is a bustling area devoted to shabby huts and animal pens crammed to the gunwales with squeaks for sale. The orcs eat various kinds of the creature, keep some as fierce pets and others as utilitarian beasts. Smaller creatures are sold from stalls covered in cages and boxes, and here an orc can buy tiny, fluttering glow squigs, whose bright, chemical light provides illumination, or hair squigs, whose long, flowing gills resemble hair, and which are used to decorate all kinds of things, including orcs themselves. A great delicacy is the nut squig, which is sweet and crunchy, and makes a pitiful squeaking noise, as an orc crunches great handfuls of them. Orc settlements and trade thrives on teeth. Teeth are the lifeblood of orc commerce, and a major factor in the reckoning of the orc's hierarchy. An orc's teeth are grown and shed several times a year, quickly recycling to compensate for the hard times they are put through, a chewing thick squig bones and gouging opponents in pit fights, for example. As well as performing such mechanical roles, teeth are also an important part of an orc's status. The larger and sharper an orc's fangs, the more important he is, and the better he can handle himself in a fight. However, probably the most important role of teeth is his orc currency. Of course, only nice big orky teeth have any value. The miserable stubs of diggers and grots are worthless. As teeth are grown and shed on a regular basis, every orc has a regular income, if necessary, and in times of dire need can ask a doc to extract a couple of teeth prematurely. Well more than a couple, after paying the dock for his services. Teeth usually have a consistent trade value, as anyone who demands more teeth than something is worth is asking for a beating. A decent weapon, like a shooter, is usually worth two teeth, whereas a buggy will be worth a big bag of 20 teeth or more. The origins of using teeth as currency are lost in the mists of Orc prehistory. However, it is not that much of a surprise, as Orc teeth have many practical uses – when carved properly, they retain an edge without blunting for many weeks, and their molecular composition means they can cut through many substances with ease, including thin sheets of steel. When crushed into a powder, docks even use teeth mixed with various fungi as effective poultices, and ingesting certain compounds mixed with teeth can aid an orc's regenerative processes. Despite these properties, orc teeth, if not... Purposefully crushed, eventually disintegrate and fall apart, making sure that even the richest orcs' hoard will never last him forever. Orcs don't save their teeth; they have to spend them fairly quickly, and this keeps the market's dynamics working evenly and sustains the whole orc community. As the old orc adage has it, "Teeth make the world go round." Away from the shadow of Gorkamorka, the traders give way to brewhouses, slop shops and endless little workshops. They are crude constructions by human standards, walls of metal, hammered into flat plates and riveted or bolted together. But orcs don't need or appreciate the sort of comforts which humans surround themselves with. All these places are houses where an orc lives and works. He makes things in a little workshop which fronts onto the street, and the workshop is also his shop where customers can walk round and examine the work in progress. Poorer orcs might even live and sleep in the same room. Richer orcs build extra rooms above, below and beside their workshop and generously let the apprentice youths, young orcs, and Gretchen's slaves sleep under the workbenches. There are lots of different kinds of artisans, of which the most respected are the mech boys, scientists, mechanics and inventors rolled into one. The mechboys are also Gorkamorka's priests and enjoy the special favour of Gork and Mork, and so all the other orcs look up to them, and they, true to their calling, look down on everyone else. Even a young or impoverished mechboy is still a mechboy, and proud of the fact. Their workshops are large, rambling places, stuffed full of old machinery and spare bits, which the owner has convinced himself will come in handy one day. Abandoned projects lie in corners or are piled onto nearby shelves, covered in tarpaulins and buried beneath years of dust. The mechboy's youths work feverishly upon his latest brainstorm of an idea, bashing sheet metal into body parts, welding up chassis rails and grinding away at bearings, half-shafts and leaf springs. They are only too pleased to work for the mechboy, brew his fungus tea and sleep under his bench. These young orcs dream of becoming mech boys one day and having workshops of their own. Although mech boys are the most notable of all the inhabitants of Mechtown, there are countless buildings devoted to all the many trades that keep orc society going. In the brew houses, brewboys make potent fungus beer and distill strong liquors, which they serve and sell by the barrel load. The slop shops sell almost every kind of food imaginable, many kinds imaginable, Only to an orc, and a few imaginable only to an orc with an especially strong stomach. Every morning, the sloppers' youths run round the squig market, buying up fresh ingredients in anticipation of the day's frenzied demand. Every slopper tries to outdo his rival by making the spiciest fungus stew and the crunchiest squig pies. And most have a speciality of the house which attracts customers from all over Mechtown. Sometimes the attraction can prove fatal, but orcs enjoy taking risks, even with their digestion. Other workshops make and sell clothing, boots, ironmongery, squeak hides, and everything imaginable from barrels of tar to simple gorgores and brightly coloured paint. Every profession is represented in Mektan. A particularly worthy group are the docs, the closest thing that orcs have to a medical profession. The docks live behind the squig market, right at the edge of the valley in which Mecktown lies. The docks' surgeries are built along the rising ground or on the lower slopes of the valley walls, from where they get an excellent view of Gorka Morka, a great comfort to customers undergoing dangerous surgery. Orcs are surprisingly resilient creatures and almost unaffected by disease or pain. It's not that they don't feel pain entirely, they just don't suffer traumatic shock from injuries in the way that humans do. This enables them to tolerate, amongst other things, the most horrific surgical procedures. Fortunately, orc bodies heal extremely easily, and readily tolerate transplants from other orcs. They can get by in the absence of one or two major organs, even the heart. The entire vascular system being provided with muscular arteries which can pump blood around the body all on their own. Because orcs are so tough, they have never developed a sophisticated approach to healthcare. In fact, most of a doc's knowledge is based around patching up orcs who have lost bits in fights. And in this field, the docs are remarkably expert. Hands, arms, and legs can be replaced with complex metal prosthetics that work even better. Even whole head transplants have been known to work, though a certain amount of risk is involved and customers are discouraged from shaking their heads too vigorously for a year or so afterwards. Apart from patch-em-up surgery and cutting off the odd gammy leg, docks do a roaring trade in potions and remedies for everything from scabby skin to toothache. Orcs are generally loath to visit the docks, who are commonly accredited with talking customers into unnecessary and especially painful surgery in the interests of building their stock of spare parts, or even worse, so-called research. Due to a natural and understandable reluctance to have anything to do with the medical profession, by the time an ill or injured orc gets himself to a doc, he is usually in such a mess and so desperate for relief that he'll gladly let the doc do whatever he likes. Many an orc has gone to visit the dock to have a tooth pulled out and come back minus a foot and with some bizarre whirling device implanted in his head. Mechboys apply their trade amongst the workshops of Mechtown, making and selling buggies, bikes, trucks and tracks, designing improbable weapons and inventing things that just popped into their heads. The biggest, richest and most influential mechboys are also part-time priests of either Gork or Mork, for one month in free, or whatever period of time seems just and reasonable, the mech boy packs up his shop and goes to Gorkamorka. There he works away on behalf of the Orc God, fixing old knackered bits and designing new parts, lending his skills to the construction effort. He will probably spend time discussing important things with his fellow mech boys, exchanging ideas and wondering what the Gorkas, or Morkas, are up to. They drink copious amounts of fungus brew, and their collective dreams guide them in their endeavours. The skid extends off to the southeast of Mektan, a broad valley bounded with jutting walls of melted and shattered stone. Travelling along the skid takes many days on a buggy, and is next to impossible on foot. If the heat, thirst and sandstorms don't kill you, the whip scorpions, muties and renegades will. At a number of points, fractures in the rock walls or huge sand dunes make it possible to drive up out of the skid and into the desert surrounding it. Forts and small settlements are dotted liberally around, all along the skid. Many of these are old and abandoned, but quite a few are occupied by mobs of orcs. The mobs hunt for useful scrap along the skid, though all the choicest pieces near Mechtown have been snatched up long ago. Nonetheless, the skid is still littered with all sorts of junk. Rusting frames of ancient spacecraft, juts out of the ground, huge metal plates and pipes are fused into boulders or patches of vitrified sand, cables and wiring snake among the rocks and detritus. The high rock walls of the Skid make its edges relatively cool and shady in many places. This is where great stands of fungus can be found growing, and the ubiquitous squigs eke out an existence, feeding on the fungus and each other. Gretchen and runaways, looking for fame and fortune away from the orcs, end up lurking in the fungus groves until they either get recaptured by slavers or work up the guts to make the rest of the journey down to Skid Row. Skid Row lies at the far end of the skid from Mechtown. Here the skid tapers to a narrow, sloping defile, choked with wreckage from where the Hulk first impacted on the desert surface. Skid Row is ruled over by the Gretchen Revolutionary Committee, as personified by the infamous Red Gobbo. The row itself is a fairly intact section of a stellar liner, which broke off the hook during the crash. Over many generations, the most disaffected and recalcitrant Gretchen in Mechtown have stuck two fingers up to the orcs and made the perilous journey down the skid to join their brothers in arms. The revolutionaries demand equal rights – to a place on Gorkamorka when it leaves. The Orcs generally consider this to be a hilarious idea, and are glad to see the back of such ungrateful troublemakers. The Red Gobbo's freedom fighters liberate food, supplies and even transport from the Orcs on occasion, bringing down the wrath of the Orcs upon Skid Row. However, no foray into Skid Row has succeeded in clearing the place out, or capturing the Red Gobbo, and some haven't come back at all. Northwest of Mechtown, the flat desert horizon, is broken by a huge rocky mesa, or butte, which covers several square miles. Atop this, the silhouettes of the pyramids rear up like sharks' teeth. Nobody knows who built the pyramids, or how long they've been there, but they were around long before the orcs arrived. The mesa itself is riddled with tunnels, which are home to tribes of primitive humans that orcs call diggers, amongst other things like slaves or lunch. They call them diggers because they dig underground to avoid the burning double suns of Gorka The orcs don't go anywhere near the pyramids, but not because of the diggers. There are plenty of grisly stories which do the rounds in Macktown about how such-and-such went up there and only bits of him came back, or Nuzgrut's boys chased some diggers to their holes and got caught out by getting dark, and they was never seen again. The pyramids are generally shunned and believed to be haunted by the things what built them. Once or twice in every generation, some avaricious knob will gather a mob of boys together and set out to plunder the pyramids and prove everybody to be spineless wimps. They are always found in little pieces, scattered around in the desert. or well, They just vanish completely. The ghosts seem to come by night and witch lights have been seen glowing coldly on the obsidian faces of the pyramids on the blackest nights of the year. Over the years, it has gotten more and more dangerous to go out after dark. According to the stories, the things only used to get you near the pyramids after dark. Nowadays, boys disappear at night, out in open desert, miles away from the pyramids, and some forts have been found empty, their mobs apparently having vanished into thin air. Outside the skid, Mechtown and the pyramids, the desert stretches for miles in all directions. The desert is searing hot during the day and icy cold at night. Rocks, sand, bleaching bones and rusting metal are the only features of any note, apart from the orc forts, shimmering in the heat haze and huge chunks of wreckage shed by the Hulk as it carved out the skid. Many of the wrecks lie in deadly rad zones, which promise only slow death for any who go too close. For miles around Mechtown and along the Skid, the desert belongs to the Orc mobs. Their forts dominate the land, and the dust plumes kicked up by their vehicles can be seen everywhere. The mobs spend most of their time mining buried debris from the Hulk, and battling over the choice's scrap, still lying around in the sands. There are many derelict forts too, their mobs having fallen victim to the perils of the desert, or abandoned their mine to seek out richer pickings elsewhere. Empty forts often become temporary homes to rebel grots, raiders, and other, even less savoury denizens of Gorkamorka. All around the feet of Gorkamorka is a sprawling bazaar where the orcs trade stuff, either made in Mettown or brought in by the mobs. The principal unit of exchange is teeth, a common currency amongst all or kind. Teeth can buy anything. An orc could want, except for the one thing that every orc does want: the ambition of every orc is to earn passage on Gorkamorka. For when Gorkamorka walks, flies, or teleports, the boys to wherever they are going, it is apparent that there may not be room for everybody. Even if there was room, not everybody can go first, and by implication, somebody has to go last. And maybe that somebody won't get to go at all. Years ago, the Mechboys boys solved this complex theological matter by issuing metal tickets or tags which the owner wears around his neck on a stout chain to proclaim that he has earned his passage. The Mechboys boys melted down some old redundant parts of Gorkamorka and beat out a huge sheet of metal which they cut into small tags. The Morkas stamped half the tags with Mork's mark and the Gorkas stamped the other half with Gork's mark. Both sets of tags promised a place on behalf of the god himself. When an orc performs a spectacular deed or makes some significant contribution to the construction effort, the mech boys dig into their bag of bits and reward the orc with a tag. The tag is inscribed with the orc's name so that it is all clear and above board that he has earned his tag and not just stolen or found it. Not that any orc would dream of passing off a dud or fake tag. Gork and Mork would know. The orc proudly ties the tag around his neck, confident that when the day comes, he will march beside Gawka Morka in the big war. Prudent orcs try to obtain as many tags as possible, and at least one Mawker and one Gawker tag to be on the safe side. Plainly, when the big day comes, an orc with more tags will take precedence over an orc with less. An orc wears all of his tags all of the time, as you can never be sure when Gorkamorka will do his thing. A rich and successful orc therefore wears a substantial necklace of metal pieces, often referred to as his janglies. New mobs form in Mechtown all the time, striking out on their own to battle all the other mobs for a piece of the action. They are made up of tough orc warriors and adventurous youths, hoping to make a fortune out in the desert and along the skid by collecting scrap. More important, they want to fight the other mobs to prove they're the most brutal and cunning orcs on Gorkamorka. Although many orcs never leave Mechtown, there are plenty who are ready to, if the opportunity of joining a mob arises. The lure of untold riches, renown, and as many fights as you could want is a strong incentive to the pioneer spirit of Gorkamorka. Generally, an orc nob will decide to set out in search of fame and fortune and will set about gathering a trusty band of like-minded orcs to follow him. The knob will go through the brew houses of Mechtown, check the job pole, and make inquiries after resourceful orcs looking for some adventure. There's usually no shortage of volunteers, some of whom are drawn by the promise of teeth, others simply wishing to liven up their lives with some fighting and conquest. The knob will pick out the likeliest-looking applicants, sometimes by appearance, other times by getting them to fight amongst themselves for their position within the mob. Once the mob is assembled, it must prepare for its first journey into the Wastes. Although extremely tough and strong, even the orcs of Gorkamorka need essential supplies like food and drink. Some of this they can forage for in the desert, but it is a foolhardy knob who sets out into the Wastes without some kind of backup plan. Once the vehicles are ready to go, with barrels of extra fuel and plenty of supplies, the mob sets off into the great beyond. There are many hundreds of mobs scattered throughout the skid and the nearby desert. Each has its own fort, where it is based, but the life of the scrap prospector is very migratory. Rumours of large scrap veins may cause a whole mob to up and move to a more promising site if its existing mine is running out. The knob also sends his warriors out into the desert to gather surface scrap, uncovered by sandstorms and dust devils. It is these forays which are likely to bring the mob into conflict with others, as they both head for the same patch of desert. Such encounters inevitably end in a fight of some kind. Orcs have a carefree attitude to other mobs. If they win a battle, so much the better. If they lose, they'll soon have a chance to get their own back. Although the mobs of Gorkamorka will happily raid and ambush each other, and steal the scrap from under the noses of their enemy, there is little real enmity. Battles fought are simply a part of orc life, and if the foe has a clever trick to give them an advantage, well that's just life. If the enemy caught a mob out this time, they'd just better watch their backs next time. Away from Mechtown, the mob's natural allegiance is to... Gawk or Mork tend to reassert themselves, bringing even more conflict. Although they have only the vaguest ideas about what Gawk and Mork represent, Orcs display an uncanny, natural inclination to join up with mobs of like-minded warriors. Gorkers and Morkers are always keen to bash each other's brains out once they are out of sight of Mektown. Naturally, Gorkers remain equally willing to bash other Gorkers, and Morkers are just as keen on smashing over Morkers either for some choice bits of scrap or just to prove who's the best. Gawker mobs tend to be more interested in heavier armour, bigger guns and more boys for their mob. Gorkers look at their vehicles as a way of getting from one fight to the next, so they tend to spend their teeth on other things like big shiny custom guns. Morkers, on the other hand, love their bikes, buggies, tracks and trucks with a passion and will spend inordinate amounts of teeth on getting them customised. Orc knobs are the epitome of the orc species. Large, brutal, and possessing a single-minded determination and love of fighting. Every mob on Gorka is led by a knob, and it is these individuals who keep orc society running as smoothly as possible. An orc can become a knob in two ways, by destiny or by fighting. Some orcs, from the moment they emerge from their cocoon, are naturally bigger, smarter, and are looked up to by the other Orcs. Something in the Orcs' genetic makeup makes them leaders of other Orcs. As the Orc matures, his status increases, and his belligerent attitude to bossing other Orcs around will cause it to grow even bigger. Other knobs start out as one of the boys, but fight their way to superiority by winning lots of fights, getting lucky and being cunning, usually in that order. Nobs are rare orcs, with equal measures of vision, determination, energy, and enough brutality to get things done. The knob is what holds a mob together, and gives it purpose. The orcs in a mob will follow their leader into the most dangerous firefights, and on the most suicidal missions, almost without question. Ambitious knobs constantly scour mech town, recruiting the orcs they need to form a mob. Boys to do the fighting, youths to make up the numbers and do all the running around, adventurous apprentice mechs called spanners to fix the vehicles and so on. All knobs aspire to be the big shots around Town, the ones all the other orcs step out of the way of on the streets. They dream of acquiring all the wealth and power for themselves and trampling their rivals into the dirt. Success or failure depends on how lucky and cunning the knob is, and until a new knob has a few victories under his belt All the other mobs will be gunning for him. Once he's proved his ability, orcs will clamour to join the successful knob, hoping to get a slice of the glory and rich pickings. Of course, every orc in the mob is also looking for an opportunity to oust the knob in charge and take control themselves. This is the orky way, and any knob weak or foolish enough to be overthrown by one of his own boys has no reason to complain. Might is right, and nothing else matters. If one of the boys thinks he's strong enough, he will challenge the knob to fight for their position. Before he makes the challenge, the contender will put on extra weight and muscle and develop an even more aggressive attitude. Sharp-eyed knobs will notice this and give the upstart a good kicking before he literally gets too big for his boots. If the developments of the young or goes unnoticed, uh, they will eventually challenge the knob to a pit fight. On Gorka these are public spectacles fought in pits at the foot of Gorka itself. The gods will decide the winner. Pit fights are brutal affairs, as many are fought only with teeth and claws, or maybe a knife, or some knuckle dusters. The two orcs will be primed up for the fight for days, even weeks in advance, and the battle may last a long time depending on how well developed the contender has become. It is common for the loser of a pit fight to be killed, or very savagely mauled in most orc societies different Nobs will contend with each other to become bosses war bosses and warlords however on gorkamorka the mechs have risen to a position of command and the Nobs must constantly battle each other to display their status and wealth combined with the harsh environment and battle for gorkamorka tags this means that even for orc society gorkamorka is a savage cutthroat world where the weak will be quickly killed and eaten. Once a nob has recruited enough orcs to form a mob and scraped the teeth together to afford vehicles to carry them, they can set out into the desert. A big crowd of mechs, boys, traders, inquisitive Gretchen, diggers and anyone else around at the time will gather to see the mob off. A few shouting advice, others yelling abuse or threats, some offering to do work or join them if they get lucky. Once out into the skid, the mob will start looking for a place to hole up and start building their fort. Searching for a place to claim can be a dangerous business, and often requires the mob to travel many days from Mechtown. Other mobs will fight the newcomers at every opportunity. Rebel grots will trail the mob, looking for an opportunity to steal their stuff. And sandstorms and muty raiders always threaten to sweep out of the desert. Undaunted, the mob will keep on looking for a rich vein of scrap where they can establish their stronghold. There are hundreds of such veins where the wreckage of the Hulk has been buried in the sands by centuries of storms or forced far below the surface by the violence of the impact. At times, sections of whole ships are uncovered, their twisting corridors leading beneath the sands to a fortune in unplundered tech. Most veins are simply compacted masses, an unidentifiable agglomeration of metal smashed together. First, the mob will construct crude huts from debris found on the surface. This is the most perilous time in a mob's career, and many unlucky orcs have found themselves caught out in the wilderness with no shelter as night closes in. Some mobs have disappeared to the monstrous denizens that lurk in the night, while others had horrifying encounters that have left them more than slightly unhinged. However. If all goes to plan, the orcs will start to dig beneath the surface for more scrap. Some of this they will trade with the mechs, while large metal plates and other useful bits will be built into a simple wall. As the mob digs and finds more scrap, it will add to its defences and trade its scrap for more useful bits in mech In quite a short time, the mob's fort will be visible from quite a distance, its rusted and pitted walls of buckled plates and twisted girders rising from the dunes. Extra spikes, a mechanised gate, wind and gas-powered generators, and all sorts of other gubbins are added on as the orcs prosper. Although the orcs may roam far and wide in their search for more scrap, It is their mine which will provide a steady source of income and their fort that acts as a base of operations. Here, the mob's captives are put to work by the slavers. The spanners fix up the mob's buggies and bikes, and the orcs generally relax after a hard day's digging and fighting. Most importantly, the fort offers some protection against sandstorms, enemies, the scorching heat of the twin suns, and the haunted nights of the desert. Few orcs have travelled into the deep desert and returned to tell the tale. Muty raiders, rival orcs and rebel grots are but the least of the dangers for a prospector explorer. First of all, it is easy to simply get lost and wander the wastes until thirst and heat kill you. In the depths of the desert there are deep seams of fine dust where buggies or bikes sink under in an instant. Apparently, solid plains of rock can fracture and drop travellers to their deaths in subterranean caverns. Towering windstorms can whip up without warning to bury warriors and their machines or suck them up to be torn apart in their spinning vortices. Nonetheless, some try and a few return, although none of them have found anything anywhere worth going back to. Days away to the west, through the desert, there is a great sea, which is supposedly not water, but boiling mud clear to the horizon. To the south, hot lakes and geezers bubble up from the cracked ground. Between the boiling sea and the lakes is a low range of volcanoes, which gout sulphur and ash into the skies in an unending torrent. To the north and east lie great rocky plains and salt flats, terminating in the howling hills where the winds never die. In the southeast, the mother of storms can be seen even from Mectown, a huge rotating column of wind and dust a hundred miles across or more. All the truly giant windstorms are born here, and when their twisting columns dance across the desert, the orcs have to clamp everything down tight and be ready to dig themselves out when it's all over. Diggers! Northwest of Mectown, several days' journey across the scorching open desert, lie the pyramids. To reach them is a hazardous journey in itself. A mob must endure the blazing sun, storms, quicksand, dust-covered crevasses, and the horrors of the chilling night. Only the most foolhardy attempt the journey, and only the luckiest and most determined return. So what could drive a mob into the wilderness against such desperate odds? The answer is simple. teeth and glory. For the pyramids and the land around them hold unimaginable wealth. Of course, to get this wealth, you must trade with the inhabitants of the Pyramids, the Diggers. The oldest tales of the Diggers, those that survived the anarchy of the pre-Digger Wars, tell of an ancient race who explored the depths of worlds. The Diggers' forefathers, it is claimed, lived before the coming of the Orcs. They were said to be magnificent beings, even more advanced than Orcs, who rode about in huge trucks that flew through the sky and could jump across the distant stars. Then the Big Blast happened, and the world was thrown into a terrible darkness. Digger historians, of which there are a few, and who are mostly considered insane by their fellow diggers, have studied the tales of the diggers and orcs, and have afforded the following history. The coming of the Orcs Hulk and the Big Blast are linked together in some way. Whether it was the crash of the Space Hulk that caused the Big Blast, or the Big Blast that caused the Space Hulk to hurtle out of the warp, it is impossible to say... Whatever the catalyst, at the same time that the Space Hulk was ripped from the warp, the ancestors of the Diggers were caught in the Big Blast. As the Diggers' forebears lived underground, there is not much information about what happened on the surface during and after the Big Blast. The ancient myths tell of a huge flash of energy that blazed across the sky, pulsing up into the stars. Then the world was caught in the grip of a tremendous quake, The planet shook and the tunnel entrances beneath the pyramids collapsed, burying hundreds and trapping the diggers' ancestors in the darkness. No one can tell how long the darkness lasted, and the legends that have survived to the present day speak only of how the ground shook for a year and the walls fell in and the ceilings crumbled. During the darkness, the ancestors of the diggers toppled from grace. In a desperate search for light and food, they fell upon each other. Singly, or in groups, they fought amongst themselves, shedding the blood of their one-time peers for possession of magical artefacts that could produce food from air, and glorious lights that burned for a lifetime. This was the First Pre-Digger War, or Tribe War. Out of it were established the First Tribes. The different tribes split up and went their separate ways, into the darkness of their own tunnels. However... As the years passed, the tribes grew with each generation, spreading through their dark lairs beneath the pyramids. Space and resources were limited, and the cramped conditions of many tribes led to the second pre-digger war, or backstab war, as it was commonly known. The tribes fought within themselves as well as with each other, and new tribes of the youngest and most aggressive tribesmen were created and forced to seek out their own caverns and corridors to inhabit. Then the Third Pre-Digger War, or Wrecker War, erupted. One of the new tribes, known as the Wreckers, had disappeared into the darkest depths of the tunnels, places of ill omen and horror, and were thought lost. Even then, the strange perils that stalked the shadowy tunnels preyed upon the diggers. The odd tribesmen had gone missing while searching for food, but the Wrecker War was preceded by a nightmare time when the evil monstrosities of the depths ranged afar, and the disappearances and mutilations reached terrifying proportions. The tribes were thrown into confusion, their finest warriors culled by unseen forces, their homes destroyed by ancient horrors. Then the Wreckers returned, coming out of the shadows leaving even more despair in their wake. The Wreckers brought more of the unnatural hunters with them. Who knows how they aligned themselves with these horrific warriors, what bargains they made to secure their aid. All that is known is the Wreckers spilled through the tunnels like a ravaging swarm. They delivered an ultimatum to each of the tribes to surrender to their rule or be destroyed. Some of the older tribes fought back, but their history ends during the Wrecker War with no word of their demise. The Wreckers split the tribes further, each Wrecker becoming the head of his own community. Although the rivalries between the tribes continue to the present, the wreckers and the unspoken threat they impose ensure that another huge inter-tribe war never engulfs the tunnels again. Generations passed, and the tribes expanded their control further. With the wreckers in control, previously unexplored regions became accessible, and in time, the tribesmen came across some of the collapsed entranceways to the surface, The Big Dig was started. All the tribes sent their strongest and bravest warriors to excavate the debris and bring the tribes out of the darkness again. It was back-breaking work. Toiling with hands and rough tools, breaking the massive rocks, moving the boulders into the larger caverns out of the way. Many died in sudden rock falls, and often tribesmen by the score would be swept away by a tide of sand pouring in from above. The tribes, undaunted, continued their work for years. Then, distant noises were heard. Monstrous growls and roars from above. The tunnel shook near the work teams, and the tribesmen quelled in fear of what they might discover. Then, one day, as the deafening sounds echoed through the chamber, one of the exits fell clear, and sunlight streamed in. For the first time in a hundred generations, the tribesmen saw the blinding light of the day. As the wreckers gathered around the breach, they saw shapes moving above. Green-skinned warriors ran down the rocky slope, staring in amazement at the half-blinded tribesmen. They were horrific creatures with fanged moors and bulging muscles, and the terrified tribesmen drew back in fear. The wreckers, drawing on their deepest sources of courage, stepped forward. The newcomers eyed the tribesmen with suspicion as the wreckers stumbled up the sand-strewn slope and out onto the surface. What they were to see was to change the lives of the tribesmen forever. When the tribesmen emerged from their tunnels, they were greeted by the sight of huge mechanical claws ripping at the sand and rock, filling the air with the sound of splitting boulders and the smoke from their noisy engines. The plateau was filled with the Greenskins, racing around on their powerful vehicles, shouting, squabbling and firing their strange weapons. The Wreckers looked at their ragged clothes, thought magnificent in the dim light of the tunnels, and compared them with the amazing costumes, extravagant hairstyles, and brightly coloured buggies and bikes surrounding them, their eyes wide with amazement. They wandered around, jostled by the orcs, dodging the odd hurtling truck filled with Greenskin warriors, and being stared at by red eyes from all directions, the mech in charge of the excavation stomped over and stood squarely in front of the emerging humans. Drawing himself up to his full height, the orc towered over the wreckers. He snarled a single word before marching past the humans into the depths. Diggers! To say that the diggers were impressed by the orcs is a drastic understatement. For them, whose only armaments had been little more than clubs and blades, the huge guns and strangely crafted weapons of the orcs were wondrous devices. The orcs and buggies, trucks and tracks, which brought a stream of orcs across the desert were awe-inspiring, and the diggers were immediately filled with a keen desire to have these things for themselves. At first, the orcs had no regard for the diggers at all, They took over the tunnels and enslaved the diggers. They heard the diggers' stories of buried artefacts and stole any example of ancient technology they could find, selling them on to the mechs. As the initial wonder of the orcs began to wear off, the diggers saw the orcs' real intentions, to enslave all the diggers and plunder their domains. There was little the wreckers could do themselves to prevent this. The orcs were naturally better fighters, and their crude but brutally efficient weapons were more than a match for anything the diggers had to offer. Then, one night, as the orcs laughed around their camps outside and bullied the diggers in the tunnels, the wrecker's hideous allies made themselves known. In that one short period of darkness, the orcs surrounding the pyramids and in the tunnels were massacred, and only a few survivors were left to spread the message to the other orcs. The orcs' bodies were never found. Their weapons lay smashed upon the ground. Their vehicles were mangled into scrap or torn apart. Huge craters pockmarked the desert, and scorch marks and smouldering ash littered the tunnels. The orcs who fled into the desert were picked up days later by their fellow greenskins. They ranted of gleaming eyes surrounding the camps, and then the attack that came from nowhere. They swore that the pyramids themselves glowed with power and that huge unseen portals had opened, spilling forth an army of utter terror. They gibbered madly, ranting about monsters of the night who slew the orcs with blazes of light and dragged others off, their screams stopping suddenly in the darkness. When dawn came, the destruction wrought was vast and the orcs fled the plateau, leaving it to the diggers. They named the area Morgur Ugar Dula Luluk. Golak Skard Slag, the fortress of ancient terrifying power, land of waiting death, pain, and destruction. It is a name of utter dread amongst the race who fear virtually nothing. Slowly, the orcs recovered from their bloody ejection from the plateau. When the diggers first started bringing the buried technology of the pyramid to the mechs, trade started. The wondrous weapons and items the diggers brought forth from their tunnels were coveted by the mechs, and demand for more grew. The diggers were happy to supply them with their ancient artefacts in return for shooters and cannons, trucks and stick bombs. The diggers were soon experts in scouring their realm for the old weapons of forgotten races and unknown times, and the more familiar they became with orc weapons and equipment, the more understanding they gained of the items they had possessed for so long. Crude clubs were seen to be pistols, while the bangles of the wreckers, upon inspection, would produce shimmering force fields that protected the wearer. The gift of knowledge the orcs brought was priceless, and the diggers have been eternally grateful for it. As the relationship between the two races continued, the orcs' initial fear of the diggers subsided, although their abhorrence of the pyramids remained. Nowadays, the orcs see the diggers as somewhat amusing but necessary features of life while the more the diggers learn of Orc society, and the great Gorka itself, the more they want to be like the Orcs. The diggers are still divided into their tribes and are led by the Wreckers. In return for Orc weapons and vehicles, the diggers sell scrap to the Orcs. Emulating them to the full, the diggers roam the desert, which they call the Upside, as opposed to the Tunnels, which are the Downside, searching for the loot of the Hulk, which they take to Mektan. They fight other digger mobs, and the orcs for the right to dig, fend off muty raiders and persecute Gretchen revolutionaries, just like their greenskin neighbours. They also immerse themselves in orc culture, as much as they are allowed. Not only do the diggers take on the orc lifestyle, they also attempt to look like orcs. The greenskins' massive bodies, savage claws and mighty fanged jaws are a fearsome sight, and the diggers wear specially rigged clothing and decorated helmets to look as orky as possible. The more esteemed a digger is, the larger his costume will get, until the digger knobs and the wreckers themselves have enormous harnesses beneath their clothing, giving them hulking shoulders and barrel chests, helmets painted with fearsome orc faces, brightly coloured topknots and scalp locks, and many tattoos declaring their prowess and allegiance. Diggers utilise every aspect of orc technology, but it is often modified to suit their own ends. Diggers cannot stand the blazing suns of Gorkamorka as well as the orcs can. Then their vehicles are often rigged with awnings and shades to protect them against the heat on long journeys. The diggers decorate their vehicles with the skulls of their enemies and the strange alien bones they find in the tunnels during the search for buried tech. They tie pieces of useless tech to their buggies Wear necklaces of glittering crystals and generally try to be as impressive as the orcs looked on that very first day of contact. It is a process that continues, and each passing generation of diggers tries to act even more orky and look even harder than the one before. Gretchen revolutionaries! Skidrow is a name that conjures up many images in an orc's mind. To some, it is an unknown realm bursting with potential adventure and mayhem. To others, it is the symbol of a threat which must be kept under scrutiny. Skid Row is the refuge of outcasts, renegades and weirdos that even the robust customs of orc society cannot tolerate. It is here that orcs who wrong the mechs end up rather than face down in the fighting pits. Here live the mechs and docks who have taken their experiments one step too far and earned themselves the title of nutters. Forever banished from Mectown, unless they destroy Gorkamorka with their wild weapons, or kill off swathes of the population with some virulent plague cooked up in their surgery. Foremost amongst the pariahs of Skid Row is the Gretchen Revolutionary Committee. The Gretchen Revolutionary Committee, or the GRC, is a reactionary body of grots. For a long, long time, many generations of orcs have been the target of a bitter campaign of hate and anger. Ever since the mechs introduced the tag system for Gorkamorka, whereby you can only get on board once the big wire starts if you have a tag, there have been those who have considered the system to be unfair. The reason for the Gretchen Revolutionary Committee's disenchantment is clear. Grots don't get tags. Despite slaving their guts out for the orcs, risking death and injury in battle for them, Grots will never get a Gorkamorka tag, and so will never get taken on the big wire when it leaves again. Understandably, this state of affairs seems extremely unjust to the Grots, and almost as soon as the tags were introduced, there were a few loud-mouthed individuals decrying the Mech's wisdom, shouting their disapproval from street corners and in the bazaar. These troublemakers were quickly dealt with, but too late. Words spread, and soon all the Grots in Mechtown knew about the system, which had been kept hushed up by the Mech's. As news of the mechs' cruel and callous injustice reached the ears of the Gretchen, murmurs of discontent began to be heard. The mechs would awake in the morning to find Tags for all! We's all green! And mechs are scam! Scrawled over their workshop walls. The mechs and their bully boys tried their best to root out the malcontents, and many grots were herded into the pits and never seen again. Rather than quelling the unrest, this fervour fanned the flames already lit by the orcs' oppression. Whenever the orcs stamped down on the grots, twice as many incidents would occur the next day. The first big action of the revolution came in the Strike. Nobody knows how word was spread amongst the sprawling buildings and myriad alleys of Mechtown, but one day, the orcs shuffled out of their crude beds to find that the grots had stopped working. The cooking fires weren't lit, the stalls in the bazaar weren't set up, guns weren't polished, the streets were choked with filth, and the engines and furnaces of the mechs were silent and cold. There were no grots in sight, not a single one. As the orcs gathered about the foot of Gorka Morka, staring around in amazement, the sound of distant high-pitched chanting came along on the desert wind. In their hundreds, the grots marched down Mechtown's main thoroughfare, raised above the mass were ragged banners with the slogans of the revolution daubed on them. "'Rise up, grots of Mechtown!' Down with tags and equal rides. As the procession came nearer, the orcs could make out the bizarre chant. What do we want? Tags. When do we want them? Now. What do we want? Tags. When do we want them? Now. And so on. The tramp of diminutive feet echoed through the silence of Mechtown as the grots marched ever on. The Grotz parade stopped just short of the orcs assembled around Gorkamorka, and a small contingent of the leaders came forward, bearing their equal-ride standard. The most important and respected mechs stepped out to meet them halfway. After talking for a few minutes, during which the voices of both sides grew steadily louder and angrier, the mechs moved away and formed a huddle to confer with each other. The mechs debated with each other for the whole morning, during which the suns rose higher and higher until it was nearly midday. Then suddenly the mob of mechs broke up and marched determinately back to the grot's representatives. Without warning, the orcs attacked their smaller cousins, punching them to the ground and beating them with the butts of their guns before literally kicking their heads in. The banner pole was snapped across a knee and the bright flag of the revolution was cast into the dirt, trampled and spat on. An angry roar reverberated across Mechtown, and the Gretchen, incensed by this baseless assault, surged forward en masse. Before the mechs realised their danger, they were swamped by the mob and disappeared from sight. Still, the Grots charged onwards, until they crashed headlong into the main group of Orcs. Taken aback by this outrage, the Orcs were initially swept aside as the Grots tried to storm Gorka Morka and get on board. However, as their initial shock turned to anger... The orcs counterattacked, drawing their clubs and choppers. They charged into the grots and a swirling melee erupted. The larger orcs smashed down many of their foes, but the grots were angry and had the vast superiority of numbers. Although many of the Gretchen fell, the orcs were grappled to the ground and overwhelmed. Nobody knows who fired the first shot, but soon the orcs had reached for their shooters and cannons and were blazing away at the grots. Scores of slaves fell in the most unexpected salvo. The dirt roads of Mechtown stained with their blood. Then the grots split. Some of them launched themselves at the orcs, snatching weapons and turning them on their owners, while the rest of the mobs scattered, running for their lives. Mechtown became embroiled in a series of running battles. Mobs of grots lay in wait in slop houses and alleys, ambushing the orcs as they searched for the revolutionaries. The orcs themselves started a fire sweep of the workshops and brew houses, gunning down the grots where they found them. All afternoon the scattered battles continued. Valiant as their fight was, the Grots could not win against the superior arms of the Orcs, and soon they were surrendering in their hundreds. As night fell, peace descended, and those who had not given up the fight slipped away into the darkness, looting and burning what they could before they left. While the Gretchen who surrendered were beaten back into their lives of drudgery, the diehards who had left Mectown made their way to Skid Row. It was an arduous odyssey as the column of discontented ex-slaves trudged the hundreds of miles along the skid. Forced to scavenge for food and water, many of the rebels died, their bodies left where they fell by their comrades, who themselves were too exhausted to think of anything other than the next step. Day after day, the blazing sun taking an hourly toll, the grots marched towards Skid Row. At night, they would find what shelter they could, huddled together in the ruined forts of past generations. As the grots moved further from Mektan, the night brought other terrors than the freezing cold. Glimmering figures would appear in the distance, indistinct but radiating an ancient malevolence that poured forth like a tide of fear. Daytime was no better. Whip scorpions lashed out from their shadowy hiding places to paralyze stragglers, before dragging them into their lairs to be devoured. The massive moors of sand-gulpers opened up beneath the trudging figures, some of them so large they swallowed a score of rebels in one horrendous crunch of serrated shell. Carrion beasts circled in the air, swooping down when the column had passed to pick over the bodies of the fallen. Amongst their adversaries, and a few hate-filled battles with wandering orc mobs, almost two-thirds of the original dissidents lost their lives. Weeks after they had set out, the survivors shuffled into sight of Skid Row, its rusted and pitted walls and spiralling, twisted girders rising into the sky before them. Occupying Skid Row was no simple task either. The Gretchen had to fight against the manic outcasts who already skulked within its dark corridors and echoing chambers. They had to evict numerous beasts which had taken up residence, and on more than one occasion, some of those who reached the haven lost their lives whilst exploring its metallic labyrinth, some simply disappeared, others were killed by renegade orcs, while even more stumbled into areas filled with toxic gases or unleashed floods of corrosives that washed through the corridors, stripping anyone in their path to the bone. However, never once did any of the rebels consider returning to Mechtown to seek forgiveness. Hatred burned in the revolutionaries' hearts, and they vowed to exact revenge for the hardships and agony they had endured. At first, scattered groups took every opportunity to attack the orcs who approached near Skid Row, and the bravest even set out on deliberate raids. Over time, things began to get more organised, and nobody now can remember when the Gretchen Revolutionary Committee was originally born. From Skid Row, the rebels launched raids on orc mobs as they returned to Mektown, and stormed poorly defended forts to steal scrap and wreak havoc. Over the intervening centuries, Mechtown has provided a constant supply of new recruits to the revolutionaries. Although the original fighters may have died, their cause lives on, and the quest to avenge the Strike Day Massacre continues as fiercely as ever. The Gretchen Revolutionary Committee tries to drum up support in Mechtown, waiting for the day when the next uprising will come. This time, they will have weapons and be ready with a network of informers, conspirators and collaborators. The Gretchen Revolutionary Committee foments rebellion whenever it can. It runs a secret smuggling operation to enable grots who wish to join it to get out of Mechtown. It has agents in the slave market, preparing the grots for sale for the big day. Bands of revolutionaries scour the skid for newly emerged orcs and grots, killing the orcs before they can swell the ranks of the enemy and taking the newborn grots under their wing, training them for the cause. The Gretchen Revolutionary Committee continues its hate campaign against the mechs, sabotages the workshops and generally tries to force the mechs to deal with their demands. Amongst the Gretchen Revolutionary Committee, there is one faction which is particularly embittered. Formed of the most spiteful, grudge-bearing and sociopathic of the revolutionaries, they are known only as the Old Guard. The Old Guard will stop at nothing to ensure the revolution is successful this time, performing suicide missions in Mechtown and dreaming of grand schemes such as poisoning the Orcs' fungus beer, or developing a powerful weapon which will enable them to attack Mechtown and force the Orcs to their knees. The old Guard is made up of two levels, the Rebel Gots and the Committee. The Committee are the real power behind the whole Gretchen Revolutionary Committee, consisting of the Red Gobbo himself and his most trusted advisers. The Red Gobbo is the figurehead of the Revolution, and to most, rebels and orcs alike, he is a shadowy individual, who has all the cunning plans, constantly scheming to undermine the mechs and bring about the end of the tag system. In reality, the Red Gobbo is not one person, but is more of a position within de committee, like a chairman. The actual Red Gobbo is elected every so often from the committee members, and it is he who guides the will of the Gretchen Revolutionary Committee. De committee controls the actions of de rebel grotz. The rebel grotz are the Gretchen Revolutionary Committee's saboteurs, activists, hate mongers, commandos, and public relations people, all rolled into one package. It is the Committee who directs the Rebel Grots' attacks and nominates targets, and it is the Committee who redistributes the scrap and equipment brought in by the Rebel Grots. The Committee has been known on occasion to lose sight of the real fight and get distracted by its own internal politics. When the position of Red Gobbo changes hands, it is not unusual for the Rebel Grots' tactics to change too, as another school of thought starts to run the show. Even within the committee, there is often division, and the rebel grots will be out fighting the good fight, only to come back to Skid Row and find that the committee has changed its objectives and have been doing more harm than good. It can be a hard life working for the committee and its fickle members, but if you want a good excuse to blast a few orcs off the face of Gorkamorka, there's no better life. The warriors of the GRC have vowed to fight the orcs with whatever means they can. Unfortunately for the Rebellion, those means are often very, very limited. Without the mech's workshops churning out guns and ammo for them, the rebel grots are forced to use whatever weapons they can make themselves or steal from others. Their vehicles are also self-built, and since the inner worky bits of a gas engine or thruster are a complete mystery even to the most experienced mech's assistant, these rely upon a totally different perspective to the orcs' vehicles. Despite these disadvantages, the Grots do have a number of things in their favour. Firstly, there's never a shortage of recruits, and a band of rebel Grots can overwhelm its enemies by sheer numbers. Secondly, rebel Grots are fanatical about the revolution, and will often go far beyond normal bravery to strike a blow for their cause. Lastly, and more importantly to the Grots, they have right on their side. The Muties. Although they are masters of Mecto and dominate most of the area around the Skid, the vast majority of the world of Gorkamorka lies beyond the Orcs' control. There are a few forts scattered into the edges of the Big Ooze, and no doubt other settlements grown from spores blown long distance may exist in the Howling Hills and the volcanic regions to the west. All in all, though, the vast expanse of desert is the real Badlands of Gorka It is from these wildernesses Regions that the Orcs' most bitter enemies ride forth bringing war and destruction. These barren wastes are the domains of the Muti Raiders. The records of the Mutis go back a long, long time, many centuries into the past. Like the Diggers, the Mutis trace their ancestry to an old race who had mastered the skies and the stars. As the Diggers' forefathers dug deep into the ground... The Mutis' ancestors scoured the surface of the world and rode in a huge ship far up in the sky. The Mutis' ancestors were not like the Muties at all, but were fair of form, with smooth limbs, happy in their uniformity. Then came the day when the world was wrecked with torment, and the primogenitors of the Muties were flung from their lofty realm. The Muties know what happened to their forebears, and it is the main source of their hatred for the Orcs. When the Ork-Hulk was ripped from space and plummeted to the planet's surface, it also brought down the home of the Muties from its place amongst the stars. As the Ork-Hulk smashed a gouge of destruction through the rocks that now form the Skid, the abode of the Mutis' ancestors crashed down in the deep desert. Much of it was scattered by the impact, but a large portion remained intact, and its inhabitants survived. Stunned. They emerged from the wreckage of their home to look upon the world around them and found a dusty wilderness of blazing hot days and freezing cold nights. In their struggle for survival, they set about restoring their realm in the face of the savage desert winds and dust storms. Not only was grit and sand brought across the desert by these gales, but also noxious clouds of gases that were billowing from the wrecked hulk many miles away. Radiation leaked into the planet's atmosphere, spreading like a deathly pall across the desert. Slowly but increasingly, with each passing generation, the muties' ancestors began to change. Wracked by the virulent mix of radiation and toxic chemicals in the air, the forefathers of the muties found their bodies warping. Many died, unable to withstand the horrific environment they were born into. Only the strongest survived, but they were hideously altered. Their deformities varied. Some had distorted skeletons, extra limbs and eyes, others found their muscle structure mutating or their skin formed into a hard stone-like layer. As the strong prevailed, future generations became more twisted, and soon the fair faces and clean limbs of the ancestors were but a distant memory. When they first saw themselves as muties, nobody can tell, but it was a realisation that brought them much anger and bitterness. What they had lost would scar mutie society forever. Throughout the years of mutation, the muties laboured to restore their dwelling to some semblance of its former power. Using their technical skills, they mended the rent plates, rewired broken circuits, and repaired much of the damage caused by the descent through the air and impact on the surface. The name of the dwelling was forgotten, but one generation, upon inspecting a new area of their realm, came across its title. Amongst the scorch marks and blast holes, dim forms could be made out. Iter Vigila, and their base was renamed with its ancient title. Iter Vigilia. Iter Vigilia has regained much of its former glory. The work of centuries has restored much of its power supply and other systems. Most importantly, the muties gained access to its huge storage banks of information, Although it is a constant battle to keep the generators working, to maintain the energy conduits and to repair the all-too-frequent blackouts and short circuits, the muties have managed to learn much about Eta Vigila and other wonders of technology. Through generations of Keepers, this ancient knowledge has been passed on. New data has been carefully recorded and, when possible, entered onto the databanks. Old litanies and rites of law are passed on to the Keeper's apprentices, along with the collections of Scrolls of Wisdom. Through this process of learning, the old ways are kept alive. The secrets of the Muti's forebears remain, and their memory is not lost. Ever since their first contact with the Orcs, the muties have hated the Greenskins. Listening to the tales of their Hulk's crash, it became clear to the muties that the Orcs were responsible for sending Etta Vigila crashing down to the planet. Not only had they brought the muties' ancestors so low, it was the Hulk that had corrupted and mutated them down through the centuries, turning them into the hideous creatures they are now. This was a crime of unimaginable horror, an act so vile that there could never be peace as long as one orc remained to stain the world with their presence. As well as the righteous fight against the orcs, the muties continued the ancient quest of their ancestors, the search for knowledge. The muties roam the desert looking for any remnants of their forebears' technology, old essayers, campsites, bunkers and redoubts, and any other evidence of their passing. The Keepers record this information and pass it on to their apprentices before handing it on to the Cognoscenti, those who are responsible for running and updating the files inside Eta Vigila's massive memory banks. This also brings the muties into conflict with the Orcs, as they clash over buried scrap and arcane technology. The rulers of Eterna Vigila are known as the Cognoscenti. It is they who maintain Eter Vigila's vast database and assimilate information gathered by the raiders. The Cognoscenti also choose the Keeper's apprentices and hear the solemn vows when one of their followers takes on the mantle of Seeker. Only the most courageous and strongest of the muties become Seekers and it is a position which brings both honour and peril. The Seekers who chant their vows before an assembly of the Cognoscenti are charged with continuing the quest. It is the Seekers who must encroach upon the Orcs' territories, seeking out the antique equipment of the past. It is the Seekers who scour the desert in search of other muties, for there are bands of scattered brethren who have never heard of Eta Vigila, who are descended from the same forefathers, but were separated from them at the time Etta Vigila was brought down. It is the Seekers who continue the war of retribution against the Orcs, forever punishing the Greenskins for their part in the destruction of the Muties' ancestors and the debasement of their society. Only the bravest attempt the quest, and only the strongest-willed and most resourceful, survive to tell of it. Those who gain enough renown from the quest will one day be elevated to the hallowed rank of the true Cognoscenti. They will be initiated into the most secret and ancient rites of the Muti's forefathers, and they in turn will rule Eta Vigila. Part of Muti society is their worship of the distant deity, Magod. The lexicons of the ancients tell of this mighty being who rules the stars, they explain how everything comes to pass with its will. The orcs have despoiled Magod's domain, and they must be crushed. At the very pinnacle of Eta Vigila lies the Temple of Magod. It is a wondrous hall, filled with many technical marvels that even the greatest of the Cognoscenti cannot decipher. It is claimed that from the Temple it is possible to communicate directly with Magod, but none yet have been found worthy. The Astrath Prophecy, made by the great Magos Gorvaz, tells of a time when there will be one among the muties who has the enlightened mind of Magod's chosen. This individual will be able to use the Temple of Magod to ask for aid against the orcs. Magod will come with his vast armies and raise the orcs, diggers and other foul creatures from the face of the world. At the moment of their triumph, The muties will be restored to their former bodies, cleansed of the orc's vileness, and once again they will ascend into the stars and rejoice in the embrace of Magod. The muties strive for that great day, and their patience is endless. One of the aspects of mutie belief is the reason why Magod turned from their ancestors and allowed the orcs to cast them from the heavens. It is believed by the muties that their ancestors, for all their glorious wisdom and unsurpassable knowledge, had diverted from the path ordained by Magod. In their quest for mastery over machines, the ancients had lost sight of their own organic origins. By denying their own existence and shunning all but the machine, they offended Magod. Eager not to repeat the mistake of their forebears, the muties have restricted their attentions to Etavigula alone. Unlike the unholy orcs, they do not seek to construct crude vehicles to carry them around, but rather employ the natural resources they have to hand. The most common of these resources are muti beasts. These come in all sorts of breeds and species. Some are immense monstrosities chained to huge turn cranks, which plod in endless circles all day, powering generators to provide Eta Vigila with power. Then there are the small winged messengers who flutter around Eta Vigila and to the watchposts in the desert, capsules with messages and orders attached to their legs. The Muti raiders themselves ride Muti beasts, specially selected by the expert Domestali trainers for their speed and endurance. A Muti, mounted on such a steed, can search far and wide across the desert, even in the noon sun, without pause or need for rest. Muti beasts are also bred for food and to provide clothing for the muties, and they form an essential part of modern muti culture. A muti who does not care for the beasts, which support him, has a debt upon his honour. The wisdom of the ancients has been maintained to a very high standard by the keepers and the cognoscenti. By teaching their apprentices such prayers as the rites of construction, the litanies of energy and the paradigms of maintenance... The Keepers ensure that such knowledge is never lost. As well as this oral record, there are the databanks of Eta which grow with every day, amassing secrets that have been lost for centuries. The Keepers themselves also record the data they find on the Scrolls of Wisdom. The oldest scrolls date back to the founding of Eta and have been mechanically written onto transparent pages. Others are like slabs with glowing displays that flow with text. Most, these days, are handwritten upon simple paper or parchment, and it is the duty of every Keeper's apprentice to ensure that he has a copy of his master's Scrolls of Wisdom before he can become a full Keeper. The Mutis' technology far surpasses anything the Orcs can construct. The ancient ways enable them to construct weapons of immense potential, utilising the power of light, heat and plasma in a way that the Orc mechs will never fully comprehend. The Muti raiders are provided with these by the cognoscente when they embark upon the quest, and the Keeper will maintain and ensure that they are fully operational when needed. As well as guns and hand-to-hand weapons, the Mutis construct other devices to aid their fight with the Orcs and their quest for the knowledge of the Ancients. With each passing year, the coming of Magod gets closer, and the Mutis' knowledge expands. One day, Magod will return and then the muties will be free. And life on Gorka Morka continues day to day. Faction against faction. The quest for wealth, glory and salvation through escape. Thank you all for watching. I love gorkamorka So I'll tell you a story. One of the first white dwarfs I ever be- I've ever brought, right? My dad only used to give me £2.50 pocket money every two weeks. I oh know, it's terrible. And my mum never used to give me any because she had to pay for me to go to school. <laughs> that was an excuse. I have to give you dinner money. I'm not giving you pocket money. So I managed to save up, and I, uh, I walked five miles to the nearest shop I knew, sold it. I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was 10. I don't know. But anyway, something like that. I was young, and uh, I didn't tell my mum either, because I know she'd have a go at me for spending that much money on a magazine. I was terrified of that. I thought she was going to have a go at me, so I hid it. Anyway, I went and bought the uh, White Dwarf magazine where digger was released i didn't really understand it i didn't really understand the game i didn't know any of the rules to the game but i just thought it was like the cool coolest look about things the coolest aesthetic it would also add a bunch of other stuff with space marine scouts in there and everything i'd only recently gone into warham i remember i wasn't really fully up on everything i mean i was young as well so i didn't know how to play until like years later anyway i didn't fully understand it. it was just rolling dice to me it didn't make sense but yeah Digginob was one of the first, there was the first White Dwarf I ever brought, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was my favourite one anyway. My first proper magazine. I bought it myself. £3.50, saving money up. It was the first time I got, I just got into Warhammer. And like Warhammer was one of the first times I actually ever got into something, you know. I wasn't into football or anything like this. Nothing really interested me, but this did. So it's got a special place in my heart. But even just later on, when I started to understand it and everything more, I actually knew what was going on. Uh, Gorkamorka is just such a cool setting. It's amazing the work they've done. They've taken something, they've taken the 40k universe and crafted this whole separate little thing from it. And it's really fun. I think it's a, like one of their first attempts to do a skirmish game that wasn't um, Necromunda, which is a bit heavy sometimes, I think. And this was just a way of doing something a lot more fun and having vehicles and having orcs and having, you know, all these cool little sub factions and the stories behind them. I mean, the Mutie one is really sad because it's like, and, and I like the thing that the Magad, so obviously these are the descendants of tech priests or the ship's crew and whatever, Magad, Machine God, you know, uh, Eternal Vigilance, uh, Eternal eternal Vigilance. Is it Eternal Vigilance? Yeah, it is. A- eternal Vigilance, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the ship's name, but it's like just a remnant on a wall somewhere. They see the name, Eter Vigila. That's all that's left, and they think that's the name. And they're just these mutants. And they're hoping that one day that the Emperor is going to come and save them. But if the Emperor shows up, he's just going to, they, they, whoever comes from the Imperium, they're just going to be like, exterminate these, <laughs> these degenerates, get rid of them. <laughs> these, these mutant abominations, destroy them. It's sad, man. And the Orc stuff's fun as well. Like they have this, like, it's interesting. It's very interesting sort of uh, area of the lore. And I really like it. I'd like to see Gorkamoka return or something similar. I think it'd be fun. But uh, the whole thing with the diggers. And I'll tell you what the interesting thing is, because at the time, I don't think Necrons were even out. Maybe that was the the magazine I bought and it had a free Necron on the front. I don't know. There was still a lot of mystery about the Necrons. They hadn't been fully released. They were nowhere near what they are now in terms of release. Look, so seeing all this, they they built in all these little hints at the Necrons with the pyramids and things like that. Really interesting. At the time, no, there was enough. There was enough. You know, you have to understand the Necrons didn't really exist as they exist now. They were just the most we knew was that these these terminator like warriors with a bit of an egyptian theme they hadn't released the race fully and nowhere near what we've got now with the pyramids and the Catan and everything like this um all the different things i mean for the longest time they just had the floaty guys on their little speed bikes and uh and just the necron warriors and i think the lord i think there was a lord but that was like that was that was necrons for a long time that's all they were you had this and then i remember something with um Convent 101 or something like this. A Sisters of Battle convent got attacked by a Necron force. And it was the first big major military engagement. But this is the first, like, um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) timeline-wise, let's say timeline. Timeline Timeline-wise, because I can't remember the word. Timeline-wise, this was the first instance where humanity encountered Necrons. And it's like, what did these wreckers? I forgot all this until I went through this stuff again. The diggers and the wreckers and what happened with them? How's that work? What's going on there? Did the, the Necron Lord wake up and take sympathy on these people? I mean, that's possible, just for his own entertainment, probably. But, like, what's all that about? Why are they helping them? It's weird, right? And I like the fact that the Orcs are terrified of, of them. Like, seems on, like, an instinctive level. Which is quite interesting, considering the Orcs' origins as part of the War in Heaven and the Old Ones and stuff. Interesting, right? Fun little snippets that are slipping in there. Or at least you can read them that way. Anyway, cool models, cool things. And just looking through this, but I mean, look at this page. Look at this. Look at this band of lads here having a good old time. This was the golden age of uh, Games Workshop for me personally. The sort of um, mid to late 90s through to the early 2000s. For me, that 10 10 year period is like the golden era of 40k for me. When it stopped going from something that was a bit slapdash and everything to something that became a lot more... Professional, a lot more fun, a lot more clever, a lot more funny, a lot more interesting. The you know the model range, just the the quality just went up insanely. You know the artwork, the professionalism that they displayed. I mean, people complain against back games workshop, I know, but like they went from nothing to this in a very short time. It was it was shocking, really. But yeah, the golden era for me. That's my core era, right? And then I decided I wanted to. Um, I'd like to actually kiss a girl. So I'd have stopped doing the Warhammer for a while. And uh, <laughs> when I did that instead. And it didn't go well either for a couple of years. I had to find my stride. You know, don't worry, I did. I'm going to go now because I'm just thinking about um, unrelated things. Gorka great game. Go look it up if you haven't seen the pictures. But yeah, just look at these boys. Having a great time. I would have loved to have worked at your GW then. It looks like a right laugh. I'll see you later. Thanks very much for watching. Thanks to everybody supporting the channel. Back again with more stuff very, very soon. Thank you again to everybody who does support the channel in the ways you do. Um, Recent people, thank you very much. You know who you are. I'm going to detail. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, And to anyone else who would like to support the channel, help me do the work I do here, please consider using the links below. Support me in some way if you'd like. But please do like the video, subscribe, hit the bell, like, uh, comment, give me a comment. Tell me what color's better. Because you know it's green. See you later. Bye-bye.